0: Genesis 14, starting at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedaloma, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, and Rathal, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasa, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abraham the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Ena. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Loma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons but take the goods for yourself but abram said to the king of sodom i have lifted my hand to the lord god most high possessor of heaven and earth that i would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours lest you should say i have made abram rich i will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Eina, Eshko and Mamre take their share.
1: Brian, thanks so much for reading the passage for us and thanks for the really excellent job at pronouncing all the names really well. And so the question that we're gonna consider this lunchtime uh, is this, uh, what does victory look like? Well, in the world of corporate finance, Uh, Victory is displayed on what they call uh, tombstones, uh, the quality and quantity of tombstones that you have, uh, each displaying the deal size of transactions along with the parties involved, or the league tables, uh, the company that has completed the largest deals to date. If you are working in architecture, uh, the number of AIA awards your company has, or the the high-profile project that has contributed to a city's Skyline, or if you're working in law, uh, your rankings on the Chambers and Partners League tables. You see, victory, according to the world, is gaining the largest slice of the pie. And often we, we, we can mimic that form of victory in the Christian life. Uh, Chinese New Year is a really big thing from from uh, where I come from in Singapore. Uh, it's the equivalent of Christmas where the wider family comes together to spend time over a meal. Um, my mom has relatives in Malaysia, and every year as a family, we, we would make a six hour drive all the way up to Kuala Lumpur uh, to spend a couple of days there with my relatives. I mean, the food that we had there um, over a the few days, I'll just say is much better than uh, cheese sandwiches, um, I assure you. Uh, but I really distinctively remember um, one, one time going up, um, had a conversation with one of my uncles, uh, let's call him Uncle Sam, and Uncle Sam was a really successful businessman, and likewise he would call himself a Christian. And upon hearing that I was working in Christian ministry, uh, he came up to me to, to offer some advice. And this is what he said, uh, Joel, the, the secret to doing well in a ministry is to be successful. Uh, when, people, when people see a victorious Christian, that is the thing which draws them to Christ. Whether he is right or not about the method of ministry, do you see his point? It's a similar concept of victory. The victorious Christian is the one with the largest slice of the pie. So, what does victory for a Christian? What does it really look like? You know, our passage today that we have—it's a—it's a really unique one. I'm not sure when Brian was reading a passage, or you've looked at this passage before. It feels really obscure. Uh, It's a really ancient-sounding passage with names that make it feel really distant. And you won't be surprised that many liberal commentators uh, suggest that this passage, this chapter, shouldn't be part of the Bible. Uh, Yet, this passage is really significant in its own right. It's the first picture of military victory we have in the Bible. And in many ways, it, it serves as a model for future Israelites to rightly understand victory. In fact, Genesis chapter 14 uh, is the foundational passage that Psalms 110 uh, is quoting from. And some of you might know Psalms 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. And so I'll suggest the New Testament authors like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, Paul, the author of Hebrews, uh, they know a bit better than our 21st century Liberal scholars, and I'm so I'm sure we can learn from our passage today. And so this passage, Genesis chapter fourteen, is a passage of victory, a one that later Israelites would look back to, a one that helps them really understand what true victory looks like. Uh, let's go in a passage today and let's see what God has to say to us today. We're we on point one of the handout if you're following along. It's an amazing victory. The first half of this passage is dedicated to the backdrop of this story. Uh, The the scene to to picture in your head is in a different age, an age where different warlords used to rule the land. Uh, Think of England in the 7th or 8th century, uh, the kingdoms of Northumbria, Mercia, East Anglia, Kent, Essex, Sussex, Wessex, uh, where different kings would make alliances with one another, and there'll be huge struggles of power and land. Uh, well, at least that's how history has been portrayed uh, in, in Vikings on Amazon Prime. And the easy way to understand this battle is, is broadly speaking, uh, there are two kingdoms, uh, that, sorry, the, there are two groups that the kingdoms are lumped into. You have the Eastern kings versus the, the Dead Sea kings. Uh, Brian did a really excellent job at pronouncing the names but I'm going to cop out and just focus on, on two names. Uh, the first, we have Catalomir, uh, the king of Elam. Uh, he is the king who leads the eastern kings. And on the other side, we have Bera, the, the king of Sodom. Uh, we find out his name in verse two Bera, who leads the dead sea kings. And for 12 years, the dead sea kings uh, were serving Catalomir. Uh, but in the 13th year, Uh, they essentially decided not to pay the taxes. Uh, Back then, I I guess they didn't bother sending in the tax men, but instead they sent in the troops. Uh, Verse 8 and 9, it sets up this great battle. The four great kings of the Dead Sea kings versus the five mighty eastern kings in the valley of Sidon, ready for a week-long skirmish. But instead of Details about a great battle and what we find out that it's it's a rout. I looked at verse 10. Now the valley of Sidon was full of bitumen pits. And as kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provision and went their way. It's always interesting to, to notice what the biblical authors uh, what details they provide and what details they, they hold back. You see, we, we don't see any battle scenes. Uh, we just see scenes of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fleeing. I think the point is this. The author is highlighting how great uh, Cadillamne is, how his army, how great it was. And, and ultimately, the, the author, the biblical author, is not concerned so much about the battle. You see the 10 p.m. news on the ancient Near East broadcasting channel, maybe showing the destruction and death caused by the battles. But our author, well, he's only concerned about one individual, a Lot and his family. Look to verse, look to verse 12. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom with his possessions and went their way. So eventually Abraham, he he gets wind of Lot's captivity and he does something which every self-respecting 75-year-old man would do. Uh, He gathers 318 trained men from his house. He he girds up his loins. He picks up his sword and he attacks the most fearsome alliance the ancient world has ever seen. And what is more miraculous is is Abraham wins. Look at verse 15. And he divided his forces against them by night. he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions, and the women, and the people. See, it's an, it's an amazing victory. Uh, again, the author is, is reticent about how the battle scenes develop, but it's very clear it's a complete victory. Uh, the victor Over the five eastern kings, Abram, the seventy-five-year-old man, Abram he pursued them north. He brought back all the possessions, and brought back Lot with his possessions. It's an amazing victory. But as as amazing this victory is, I'd like to suggest that the real issue in our passage today, well, it really isn't about the battle, or the rescue of Lot the real issue is is what happens what happens next what will abram do with do with the possessions the spoils of war see in our passage the author repeats the word possessions five times in our passage um, it's his victory that has earned him all the possessions of the land but what will abram do with them and sometimes Actually, um, in our in discussion group, we, someone mentioned this. Sometimes the most dangerous situation is not during the battle, but after it. When we think that we've won the victory and we deserve a pat on the back. Uh, that is when things can be the most dangerous. So what would Abram do with the possessions? Uh, how would a victory party be? And that's where we come to point two, if you're following the handout. an even more amazing victory party. You've got to imagine the scene uh, with the the music playing in the background. Abram, the 75-year-old victor, uh, the one who utterly dominated the five eastern kings, returns with cartloads of goods and possessions and spoils from the battle. Uh, He's getting ready to crack open the champagne. And as he enters into the land, uh, two kings, they come up to greet him firstly we have melchizedek the king of salem and bera the king of sodom you see these two kings they respond two different res- they, they, sorry they represent two different responses to abram but also two ways that abram can respond to them with his spoils also well, what happens uh, first steps forward the king of salem melchizedek a really mysterious figure uh, with no prior introduction and as we read about him we're not really sure whether he's good or bad but the author he gives us clues about who he is look to verse 18 and melchizedek king of salem brought out bread and wine he was priest of god most high firstly we learn his name melchizedek which means righteousness in the original Uh, His king, he's the king of Salem uh, or Jerusalem, which means peace. But next, we we also find out that he's not only a king, but he's also a priest. And more surprisingly, a priest of God Most High. This seemingly pagan uh, king was actually one who had a relationship with the creator God. And notice also his posture to Abram, he brings out bread and wine, a gesture of goodwill to add on to the champagne, ready to celebrate with Abram his amazing victory. And observe what he says to Abram in verse 19, look down to verse 19. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. You see, this king Melchizedek he blesses Abraham, and he recognizes that God is the one who has given Abram the victory. Uh, Melchizedek he's a good king, uh, one that recognizes Abraham as the, the blessed man, the one to whom the promises came to in chapter twelve. But he also recognizes that God is the one to whom the victory belongs. And Melchizedek's character in the narrative. I want to suggest is functioning as an exalted figure, offering Abram a way of understanding and responding to God after his victory. And while it may be obvious to us how Abram should respond, um, if we are in his shoes, it may not be the most natural way. And I'm not sure about you, uh, but many a times when I'm going through a really difficult time, I desperately desperately pray that something will go well. And when it does, I, I, after that, I get this really sneaky feeling uh, that, you know what, I, I deserve a pat on my back. You know, I've done uh, actually a pretty decent job. It's my skills and my ability that got me out of that situation. Uh, thank you, God, of course, but also thank you to me. Uh, Gideon, if you recall, in the book of Judges we started last year, as he goes out to war with 300 men, very similar to Abraham's situation, he told his men to shout as they go out to war, for the Lord, then he adds, and also for Gideon. See, thank you, God, but also thank you, me. And it's, it's easy for Abraham here to have that self-glorifying sentiment, I'm just sneaking in, isn't it? But Abraham, he, he has none of that. Uh, we read there in verse 20, Abraham he, he gives Melchizedek a tie, uh, a thithe, uh, tenth of all the possessions and, and spoils. And in doing so, I think what is happening here is that he acknowledges the words that Melchizedek said. Uh, Melchizedek is right. Blessed be God, the possessor of heaven and earth. The glory of the battle goes to the creator of the heavens and earth. It's such a great picture, uh, what we have here or what it looks like to trust in God. But remember, Melchizedek hes not the only king. Uh, In steps, Barah, the king of Sodom. And even before we open his mouth, we we ought to be feeling suspicious about this chap. Uh, His name, Barah, ironically, uh, means gift. Uh, Perhaps an indication of what he says next to Abram. His kingdom, Sodom, That means burning, perhaps an indication of the eventual demise of his country. And listen to what he says when he meets Abram. No goodwill offering, but arrogant speech. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. See, what comes out of his mouth says it all. Uh, Speaking to the person who has just conquered Catalomir, the king who demolished his alliance, the first thing he says is not, thank you very much, but give me. That's really arrogant. But more than just being arrogant, uh, it's really deceitful. Uh, Notice notice what he says, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. As if to to sound really generous by offering Abram the goods of Sodom. Uh, But you see what's happening here. See, I'm not an expert of the policies of ancient Near East uh, wars, but I would expect that the the victor, well, he gets to keep the spoils of the war. He gets to keep the possessions. You see, Abram, well, he had legal rights to all the possessions being the victor. But Bera here, he, he deceitfully offers the possessions to him which he lost in battle, by the way. Uh, it's a bit like the serpent in the garden, uh, promising Adam and Eve to, to give them something they already had, that eating the fruit would make them to become like God when they were already like God, made in his image. And so it's it's all a ploy um, to stake claim in Abram's success in the future. Uh, King Barrow could say, uh, see that shield, that one of Abram, Abram's men is carrying, well, it says made in Sodom in the back. Or, or see that sandal strap, uh, the ones that Abram's men are wearing. Uh, it says made in Sodom underneath. See, the only reason why Abram is great is because he uses high quality made in Sodom products, goods that I gave to him. See, only that it wasn't for him to give. I mean, it's really crafty what Barah, the king of Sodom, is doing here. And so his function in the narrative, I think it's a contrast to Melchizedek, a crafty figure, an offer of possessions which diminishes the fulfillment of the promises of God. And as Abraham, if he would accept the goods, that diminishes the fulfillment of the promises of God. And how does Abraham respond? Well, it's responding in utter trust in God's promises. Look at verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And notice here how Abram, he repeats the words of Melchizedek verbatim, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. See, notice this his commitment to the promise, not even a sandal strap or even a thread. Uh, You can imagine one of the 318 men, as one of them leaves the the scene, he realizes that he has one of Sodom's thread hanging on his coat mail, and he runs back to to Berra and says, sorry, forgot, missed this one, giving it back to him. See, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Well, it's utter commitment to the promise that God made to him. And there you have it. Uh, It's an amazing victory, but more than that, an amazing victory party. Who has the largest slice of the pie? Well, it's the king of Sodom, uh, with all the spoils and all the possessions, seemingly like the victor. And then you have Abram and Melchizedek enjoying bread and wine together, But yet, when Abram returns home, he returns home nothing more than what he started with. See, it's an amazing victory party, more amazing than than the battle itself. It's a picture of complete trust in the Lord. And so we started this talk by asking the question, what does victory look like? So I think it's this, true victory looks like complete trust in God's promises, True victory looks like complete trust in God's promises. So even though Abraham had legal rights to all the possessions, even though he had every right to claim the goods, he decides to give it all up. No tainting of God's promises, no shortcut to it. A complete trust in God's promises. And so this passage becomes the model for all subsequent military conquests for the nation of Israel for the original readers of Genesis. See, victory is not found in in making unholy alliances with foreign nations, nor is it in stocking up horses and chariots. True victory is found in complete trust in God, a trust that he will deliver them from their enemies, trust that he will make good his promises. And how about us? Uh, In many ways, we are in a very different position Uh, None of us, I I hope, are engaging in military conflict in the confines of our houses. Uh, There are no warlords to kill. There are no spoils of wars to begin. And the New Testament is very clear to Christians. Uh, We do not battle against flesh and blood. So how should we apply this passage to us today? A few thoughts for us. Uh, Firstly, it should at least change our concept of of victory. As I mentioned earlier, a concept of victory in the corporate world is the one with the largest slice of the pie. Ironically, in our narrative today, it's Bara which leaves with the largest slice of the pie. And in our in the first Bible passage um, to speak about military conquest, we are shown this really an unexpected picture of what victory looks like. It looks like a complete trust in God's promises. And perhaps for many of you, um, I know that. Many of you have been Christians for a long time and you already know that we should be trusting in God's promises. And you, you probably don't need me to, to remind you. I have a person, I, I found it helpful as I was studying this passage to, to see the vivid presentation of what complete trust uh, looks like in a narrative form. Uh, there's no corner cutting, no threat thieving, no sandal strap stealing. Uh, just plain, complete trust that God will carry out his promises. It's such an encouraging picture. Well, if you're a new Christian, I hope this picture of complete trust in God's promises is something that you will want to aspire to, something to develop in. There are a lot more implications to flesh out, uh, so do be discussing in your groups what this truth might look like in your life, uh, what does complete trust look like? But ultimately, I want to say as well that this passage um, is propelling us forward uh, to the Lord Jesus. See, King David in in Psalms 110, as he writes Psalms 110, he has Genesis chapter 14 on one hand. And and on the other hand, he's meditating on the promises made by God to him about his future offspring, the one who will reign forever, who will have complete victory over his enemies. Uh, Look at Psalms 110 verse 1. Uh, this is what David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And again in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 110 uh, becomes the, the most quoted psalm of the Old Testament text in the whole of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. And this is Peter speaking to the Jewish crowd in Pentecost. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And ultimately, this passage, it points to Jesus, the the better Abraham, the one who is the forever king who crushes his enemies, and also the one who is the forever priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what was Jesus' victory? Well, it wasn't by grabbing the spoils offered to him by the devil during his temptation, but it was a complete trust in his father as he hung on a cross. You see, victory, well, it's complete trust In God's promises and ultimately for Christians the trust that we put into we put our trust into the promises worn for us on the cross the promise of the definitive forgiveness of sins the the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promise of life to come life with God in the presence of God a life without death pain and suffering and so true victory looks like complete trust in those promises given to us by the Lord Jesus. I hope as we close today, this par- passage becomes an encouragement to you as we head into Christmas. We are putting our trust in the one who came to this earth, the one who has won the victory for us and has rescued us from the clutches of the devil. Why don't I pray for us? Father, we praise you for the Lord Jesus We thank you that in him, we have this perfect picture of victory. And for us, Father, we pray that we will learn from Abraham to be one who has complete trust in his promises. Pray that you help us to be mulling with these thoughts as we head into Christmas, knowing that we have so much in the Lord Jesus. So we praise you for him. In Jesus' name. Amen.